Hello everyone and welcome to Amanpour from Ukraine. Here's what's coming up. We're in Dnipro with a special report from the emergency hospital saving the lives of Ukraine's wounded soldiers. Then... You can't walk away now. And that's what Putin is betting on. He's betting on we're going to walk away. The US and the EU announce hundreds more sanctions targeting Moscow, but will President Putin feel it? I ask one of the world's best-known Russia experts, Fiona Hill. And German Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock, as Kyiv pleads for more ammunition. She's confronted Russia's foreign minister over this war face-to-face. -face. Also ahead... We are helping Putin right now by not arming and not supporting Ukraine. The U.S. special rep for Ukraine's economic recovery tells Michel Martin what the failure of Congress to send aid means for Ukraine's future. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Christiana Manpour in Dnipro, which is southeast of Kyiv. Early this morning, an apartment building here was struck by Russia's Shahid drones. Two people were killed. Kharkiv and Odessa were also hit. You can see on this map how much closer to the front lines this place is than Kyiv, and that makes Dnipro's hospital a life-saving stop for the wounded Ukrainian soldiers who come back from the front. Even though Ukraine does not officially release casualty figures, today we got a rare look inside as the war enters its third brutal year. The parking lot at Dnipro's Mechnikov Hospital is jammed with ambulances. These patients are the lucky ones, fully stabilized here. After their wounds have been treated, they are being evacuated to hospitals in 10 other Ukrainian cities. It's a bloody carousel because they're making room for the next wave of casualties. In the resuscitation ward, director Serhii Ryzhenko tells us in the two years of Russia's full-scale invasion, 28,000 frontline soldiers have been brought to this hospital alone. From 50 to 100 patients, very, very serious, very, very serious. Every day, every night, 50 to 100 patients from the Avdivka Donetsk region. Yes. And the injuries are grave, shrapnel from artillery, mines and other direct fire. Avdivka is the town that recently fell and that's where these soldiers have come from. But in the next ward, alone in his room, Army Sergeant Vasily Huliak was injured on Sunday, operated on Monday and had three limbs amputated. He says, the Russians are basically just throwing meat at us, mobilized men who run at us in an open field. Do you have enough troops and enough ammunition? How do you fight them? We're on our own land, says Vasily. We fight to the last and do not give up. If they get past us, our families will be next. We have no right to lose. Waiting in the corridor outside, his worried parents. You know, he didn't ask us to go, said Mikola. We didn't tell him not to. He said he had to. And his mother Helena tells us, he said I'll do everything I can and everything that's in my power. 
Like so many Ukrainians, they've given their son to the defense of this land ever since Putin started robbing them of it 10 years ago. The director tells us non-stop surgery every day, all day, in all the operating rooms contributes to the 95% survival rate, which is higher now after 10 years of improved combat surgery and techniques. Every operation, every patched up patient is a matter of patriotic duty. Even giving blood is marked with a celebration. Here we run into American hedge funder and philanthropist Whitney Tilson, who's raised money for ambulances, generators, battery packs, but beyond the humanitarian, he sees the big picture. I think the stability of the entire world depends on the West helping Ukraine stand up to this aggression, because if we let Putin win, I think this is just the, the beginning. And somehow, incredibly, like the other wounded warriors we've spoken to, Vasily says he wants to get back to his comrades on the Eastern Front. Are you and your, your soldiers still highly motivated? You've been fighting for 10 years. I have no choice, he replies. Do you understand? Of course I'm motivated. As for the lost limbs, he says he can be a trainer. He can still be useful in this fight, which from here looks like it'll last a lot longer than anyone thought. It really is remarkable motivation there. And President Zelensky marks the two-year anniversary of this war, saying that Ukraine will prepare a new counteroffensive. But with momentum shifting slightly towards Russia right now, the U.S. has just slapped another 500 sanctions on Moscow. President Biden once again urged the House to, of Representatives to send aid. Failure to support Ukraine in this critical moment will never be forgotten in history. It will be measured and it will have impact for decades to come. But will the sanctions make a dent in the Kremlin's war machine, which, if anything, seems to be ramping up? Putin announced today that Russia is producing new hypersonic missiles and developing AI-assisted warfare. Joining me now is Russia expert Fiona Hill, who once served on the U.S. National Security Council, and she's met President Putin on several occasions. Fiona Hill, welcome to the program. We've got a bit of a delay here, so let yeah. me ask you what you make of the sanctions. Just do you think they're going to make a difference? Well, the thing with sanctions, Christian, is they always make something of a difference over a longer period of time in terms of constraining the options uh, for countries like Russia, you know, to acquire um, various technology and to, um, you know, keep on renewing their economy. In the short to medium term, it's sometimes harder to see the impact. I mean, we did have uh, actually a pretty immediate impact on uh, Russia's ability to conduct the war early on. But, you know, we also have the problem uh, that Russia was able to ad adapt and learn. They actually are still uh, able to acquire technology from other countries or via other countries, even including from the United States. We've had a lot of reports about this. So in addition to actually uh, announcing sanctions, we have to really try to find new ways of enforcing them and to stop other countries from actually providing uh, Russia with equipment. You mentioned at the very beginning of your opening segment about a building uh, being hit by a Russian Shahi drone, you said. 
The Shahid drones have been provided by Iran. And this is also an example of some of the problems that we're facing, that countries like Iran and North Korea are actually providing Russia with uh, ammunition and with other equipment. And we're going to have to find a way of addressing that as well. Yeah, I, I said it because I said Russia's Shahids because you're right. They are getting all their or a lot of their main ammunition now from elsewhere and their main weapon systems. Uh, and they've also ramped up their own domestic uh, weapons production system. When you look at the battlefield right now and you see the loss of Avdivkia over the weekend, you see more pressure towards uh, towards basically towards Kharkiv. What are you thinking as you look at the map? Well, what I'm thinking is that, as the president just said, and in fact, as uh, Whitney Tilson, who also um, interviewed, just said, this is a really critical moment. I mean, one of the reasons that Avdivka has fallen is because of a lack of ammunition. Uh, and the uh, Ukrainians have had to ration that in many respects. And that's frankly on us. I mean, while we're dithering around trying to make a, d a decision as to whether we step up at this historic moment, uh, as we see all of these brave young Ukrainians are, are getting injured or actually dying on the front, this is a very similar situation to actually World War II, when the United States was trying to support uh, Britain uh, and the United Kingdom uh, in the period from 1939 up until 1941. And there was a lot of debate in the US, you know, backwards and forwards then about whether we should continue the support to the United Kingdom. We had no desire to put boots on the ground. And we're in that kind of historic moment where we really will be judged by history moving forward from this as to whether we give Ukraine enough support to keep fending the Russians off. It's not about doing an offensive at this time. It's about keeping the Ukrainian lines where they are and fending the Russians off from making any more gains, incremental as they may be. But you, but you do see that they are making gains and that, you know, the Russian m modus operandum, if you like, is to sort of, in my, in my word, grosnify most of the towns and cities that they have, you know, been involved in attacking and leveling, whether it was in Grozny, whether it was in Syria, whether it's been Mariupol, or, or you saw the pictures of, of Avdivkia. I mean, incredible yeah. to see the, the overhead pictures. Um, they, they, and you heard that, that, that young man say that they're just still just throwing meat at us, in his words, just rushing across the fields at us. There doesn't seem to be any um, restraint or limit on what the Russians are willing to do and how many they're willing to lose. Well, I mean, eventually there will be a limit, but that's eventually, right? I mean, we know, you know, up till now that the Russians have uh, on their side got about 315,000 casualties. That includes severely maimed, like the young man that we just saw in hospital, as well as killed and taken out of action. There have been Russian military bloggers. Um, one has just recently committed suicide because they've um, actually revealed that thousands of uh, Russian servicemen have died just in the assault of Adivka over the last uh, several months. Putin is banking on the fact, however, that he can keep on throwing more men and ammunition at this battlefield over this next year to basically instill a sense of defeat in us. So again, the critical point is we know, as you've pointed out uh, very eloquently here, Christian, that you know, Russia's modus operandi is literally to destroy everything and uh, to sacrifice as many people as possible on their own side. Uh, Putin is well, very well willing to fight to the last Ukrainian and uh, presumes that he'll get to that before the last Russian. But if we show some resolve here and show that we're actually willing to help uh, support Ukraine as it digs in and keeps fending the Russian off, the Russians off, that might make um, some, uh, I'd say, create some 
prospect for a turning point in the year ahead. This is a critical year in 2024, and I think the uh, main point is that we mustn't basically blink, uh, that we shouldn't step back here. But that's exactly what Putin's trying to do, get us to blink, uh, including with all of these announcements about hypersonic missiles, satellite missiles yeah. in space, you name it. He's trying to get us intimidated and to step back. Well, so I, there's so many questions about Putin there that I want to ask you. But first, given that you just said, you know, it's clear that he's trying to say things on this anniversary that are very, you know, you know, confrontational. What do you think, if anything, he managed to get through with that conversation with Tucker Carlson? Well, there were a number of different messages there. I mean, one is that he sees this as a kind of almost an eternal battle. Um, I think much to Tucker Carlson's surprise, he kept taking everything back to the ninth century. He's basically trying to convey the Ukraine doesn't exist as a country. It's an eternal part of Russia and that not just um, right is on his side and might on his side, but even, you know, perhaps uh, the whole history of the kind of uh, the European uh, space here. Uh, he also um, made it very clear that he had no intention of dropping his maximalist aims. And that's something that, you know, we have to contend with. There's so much of a debate going on, you know, within Europe right now about is it possible for Ukraine or on a broader scale for Europeans in the United States to negotiate with uh, Putin and Russia. And there was no sign in that interview with Tucker Carlson that Putin's ready to do that. I mean, again, he sees himself as prevailing here. And he also sees himself as uh, something of... Uh, a czar of a, of, a, of a Russian king, of a tyrant in a historic uh, sense. So there was no sign there of any uh, movement on uh, Putin's part at all, and none of his recent statements suggest that. And of course, he has his own election to go through in this next month in March, and he's looking to have himself anointed and, you know, uh, cemented in place so that he keep, can keep on uh, pursuing the track that he's on already. Just because you mentioned the election and pretty much unopposed, what effect do you think the, uh, the death of Alexei Navalny will have at all on internal Russia politics or the way people outside look at Russia? Is it just, just, you know, just something that's happened that won't in the end make a huge amount of difference? Well, Putin is deeply cynical and he wants to make sure that it doesn't make any difference at all. And I think, you know, what we're seeing at this moment in this dreadful standoff between the Russian state and the prison system and Navalny's mother over Alexei Navalny's body being released is just indicative of this. Behind that, there is actually a concern on the part of Putin and the Kremlin that Alexei Navalny might, in fact, become a flashpoint for dissent and opposition inside of Russia ahead of the election. Navalny has famously called out for uh, people who support him to appear at the Russian polls for the election on March 17th at the very end at uh, 12 noon as a kind of show of defiance. There is a fear on the part of, uh, of Putin and the Kremlin that the funeral, any kind of funeral, uh, any kind of public manifestation of grief and mourning uh, for um, Alexei Navalny might turn into something as well. And they are, of course, worried that opposition figures, including now most prominently Yulia Navalny and Daria Navalny, the wife and daughter of Alexei Navalny, might start to rally people around them. So we're trying to see here, or we're seeing here, Putin try to intimidate everybody to step back. Plus assassinations of people who have actually 
stood up um, uh, to um, uh, the Kremlin in different ways or have actually, you know, tried to thwart them. There's this uh, recent assassination of a Russian serviceman who uh, Putin sees as a traitor, obviously, uh, by leaving uh, Russia and going to Ukraine, who's been killed in Spain. There's all the poisonings, you know, that we've seen for a very long time, including Alexei Navalny, uh, the killing of Yevgeny Prigozhin after his insurgency. Putin wants to show everyone that he means mm -hmm. business, and there's a very high threshold for action here. Fiona, do you worry at all uh, about Alexei's mother, who is in the country, uh, really being very public about how she's having these arguments and, and basically insisting that she be able to have her son's body, be able to bury him as she, the family, has a right to with their own traditions, uh, where there's apparently, she's saying, she's being blackmailed and threatened uh, to have it a quiet one or they'll put it, you know, put him in the ground in the penal colony. I mean, she is really, you know, going at them from within the belly of the beast. Well, she's doing exactly what her son did. This is obviously an incredibly brave family, and they do pose um, something of a danger to Putin and his whole narrative about everything, and to his cynicism. And you're also seeing uh, even Russian Orthodox priests coming out and saying, look, this isn't a Christian thing to do. You know, how are we really then a Christian Orthodox nation if we're denying uh, the mother the right, the legal right, and the religious right uh, to bury her son in an appropriate fashion? You can see some momentum emerging around this, and, you know, the long uh, the Russian government uh, keeps this standoff with her, you know, actually the more risky it may become for them. I think that um, Alexei Navalny's mother is an incredibly brave person and for that reason I do actually worry about her because the Kremlin has shown that it really wants to clamp down and in previous uh, iterations of wars in Afghanistan, for example, and also Chechnya. You've mentioned Grozny, uh, the capital of Chechnya, multiple times. It was soldiers' mothers, uh, the mothers of the victims, the casualties of these wars, that actually did push back against the Russian state. And here you have the mother of someone, Alexei Navalny, who has frankly become a martyr in a political sense, pushing back and trying you know, to uh, hold the Kremlin to account. And I think we should watch this very carefully. And again, she is an extraordinarily mm -hmm. brave person. And, and finally, Fiona Hill, I want to ask you, you were in Munich at the security conference. We met there. There was just so much anxiety, it seemed to me. I could really sort of take that in about whether America would stand firm as a fully, you know, fully uh, committed member of NATO. What happens if uh, Donald Trump wins again? Uh, can Europe, you know, continue to count on NATO? Just a lot of anxiety. What, what did you take away from there? Well, I also heard and uh, saw um, in terms of interactions and watching the people reacting behind that anxiety, a, an increasing uh, readiness to actually stand up. And here, the United States is very sadly the weak link. I, frankly, I think it's rather shameful on our part at this historic moment that we're so consumed with our own, you know, domestic rancor and infighting that we can't see, you know, where we are right now. Uh, you know, if uh, we look back on this moment, it'll be the moment where the United States relinquished, uh, you know, basically its international role out of weakness, not out of strength, which is something that we've always, you know, stood for over this last hundred years of uh, really um, trying to support our European allies 
allies in uh, the defense of uh, their security. But I'm starting to see, you know, in, in particular countries in the Baltic states, uh, Scandinavia, Nordic uh, countries, for example, a real willingness to stand up and say, OK, this is a historic moment. This is about European security. It's not just about Ukraine at this juncture. It was in the immediate uh, days of the, interv uh, of the invasion by Russia. But now we see that Russia is a threat, is, is, is an increasing threat through the military buildup, the kinds of activities that Russia is perpetrating. I mean, this, this assassination of a Russian serviceman was in Spain, for God's sake. And there's been multiple poisonings and assassinations in other European countries as well. The threat is now apparent and Europeans are getting ready, I think, to confront that. Now, of course, it'll be quite difficult and certainly without the United States, harder uh, than uh, people would hope. But I do actually see preparation, a readiness and a preparedness to do something. And finally, finally, uh, I wanted to ask you what and how you assess. Essentially, you remember the, the West has been saying Putin wants less NATO. He's got more NATO. He thought we would be disunited. In fact, we're more united than ever. He thought we wouldn't, you know, stay the course. In fact, we did. Now, you know, many people have said Putin's just waiting the West out. And I wonder what your analysis, what do you think he's thinking of the West staying power now? Well, he's questioning for here, it. For Ukraine. Yes, well, he's questioning it just as we're questioning it as, mm -hmm. as well. And I think, you know, the antidote to that is to show that, you know, we have got that capacity, that resistance, that will to resist and resilience and preparedness uh, to push back. And again, it's not about pushing back offensively, okay. you know, against uh, Russia. It's about helping Ukraine hold the line and defend itself. Fiona Hill, thank you so much indeed for joining us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And my next guest has been facing up to Russian aggression in person. Germany's Foreign Minister Annalena Baerbock imploring her Russian counterpart Sergei Lavrov to stop the violence when they met at the G20 summit in Brazil. And that comes as the Bundestag has now approved further military aid to Ukraine and the EU delivers its 13th package of sanctions this time also targeting Indian and Chinese companies that are feeding Russia's war machine. Foreign Minister Baerbock joins me now from New York. Welcome back to the program, Foreign Minister. Uh, can I ask you first, what was the response when you, what did you say to Sergei Lavrov as he was sitting down close to you at the, at the table? Hi, Christian. Thanks for having me again at your uh, program. Well, I was 
telling uh, the foreign minister from Russia uh, very clearly because he asked the cynical question why is the whole world so occupied uh, with Ukraine and said well because you brought the war over Ukraine and we wouldn't be occupied if you stop the war now. It's all in the hands of the Russian president. This war would be over tomorrow. The world would have peace again if uh, Putin would withdraw his army. And I was telling them that uh, straight uh, in his face, because I think it's important at the table with uh, G20 members to always also counter uh, his lies he's been spreading now for two years. And w what was his response, the foreign minister? Well, we have seen that also for two years now, that uh, the Russian foreign minister, but also others, they come, they give uh, their speeches uh, with many, many lies and fake uh, news, and obviously do not really react uh, to what others are saying. Uh, at the second day, he was only there for his own uh, statement. Uh, but others at the table are obviously hearing. And I think this is important that we have to realize Things have really changed. Two years ago, when we were meeting as foreign ministers at G20, just a couple of weeks after this horrible war from Russia has started, I mean, there were many other countries from Africa, from Asia, blaming us, uh, NATO, uh, to, to have started uh, this war because they were following uh, the false propaganda from Putin. This has changed dramatically. No one, none of the other 19s at the table, uh, had, had supported Putin there and this is why we have to be so crystal clear to also put pressure on others like China to take a stance. That, that is interesting if that shift remains and holds. That, that is interesting because the Global South, the G20, were very much, at least publicly, buying into the Russian narrative. So, look, the EU has put sanctions again, announced more sanctions onto Russia and some countries that are providing Russia with goods and services. The U.S. has announced, President Biden, another, you know, 500 sanctions and targets. Do you really think... Or what do you really think this is going to do to change Putin's behavior? Well, the sanctions were never meant in the first place to change Putin's behavior, because if it would have been so easy, then obviously this war would have been uh, over. But to stop the support uh, for this brutal war, to cut off all the supporting lines, because what we see, unfortunately, uh, also within these two years, that obviously there have been uh, drones uh, from Iran, that uh, there's uh, support from uh, North Korea. We had the question if there would be also support uh, from China. China and uh, Putin uh, has uh, some benefits if still um, uh, military material is coming in and this is why these sanctions are also so important to cut off these lines uh, making also clear to all the companies around uh, the world that they have to think twice to check three times uh, whether goods dual use goods uh, could end up in the hands uh, of an atrocitor. Uh, Foreign Minister, your Ukrainian counterpart, Dmitry Kuleba, told me this week that had the weapons pipeline not been blocked by the MAGA Republicans in the United States, the town of Advitka would, ha would not have fallen. This is a pretty big indictment of support or non-support from the West. A. Do you believe that? Are you also very concerned about the blockage of military aid? And 
What can Germany or Europe do to fill this gap? We have seen what this military support has done over the last two years. I think this is always important uh, to remember because the debates uh, we are seeing here uh, now at the Capitol Hill, we have had also in uh, Germany, also in Europe. People saying, so what does it all bring? The war is not over. Well, unfortunately, this is true because this is Putin's decisions. Yet, the brave men and women from Ukraine have um, liberated. 50% of what Putin had uh, conquered in the first place. Putin wanted to take over the whole country, wanted uh, to uh, expel 40 million people or even kill them without our military support. He would have won that war uh, in a couple of weeks, but he didn't. And this is why it's so crucial for us that we continue our support, that we continue uh, the people's uh, support, that they can liberate their towns, that what they've done also in the Black Sea, they have fought back. Now we have grain uh, coming out of uh, Odessa again. We have the Ukraine on the pathway to the European uh, Union. The best thing we could do for Putin would be to give in and do not support Ukraine anymore. This is an, not an option for us in Europe. This is why we not only increased our military support, we have done things we would have never thought of uh, before. We passed 50 billion package from EU, 30 billion from uh, Germany for military support because we know and we have learned, unfortunately, over the last two years, this is not only a war against Ukraine, it's a war against the European peace order, it's a war against the Charter of the United Nations. So Ukrainians are fighting this war for us, to stand up for the worldwide freedom, so it's in our common security interest. And yes, this is why it's so highly needed that we also have the uh, continued support uh, from the US. I was speaking to many senators and governors uh, at the Munich Security Conference uh, from both parties and uh, many of them uh, agreed with me. I mean that this is also a, a war where other autocrats, dictators uh, watch closely from the world and I think therefore also it's in our all security interest. Your defense minister says that we all, the West, Germany and the others, have to get real and understand that they could be in for decades of confrontation with Russia. Um, I believe it was the Danish uh, Prime Minister who said that that within three to five years Putin could reconstitute if he wins here uh, and start you know, thinking about attacking or probing, testing another NATO country. Do you share that assessment? Yes. We cannot be naive. We have been naive for, for way too long. Uh, in the last year, when uh, in 2014 there had been the invasion of Crimea, everybody said, well, hoping helps us to secure uh, our peace and security. Unfortunately, a lot. And the Ukrainians had to pay that with a very high price. And therefore, for me, it's crystal clear. We have to stand with Ukraine as long as it takes. Also, the discussions, maybe there could be some freezing. I mean, if now at this kind of situation, Ukrainians would stop to defend themselves, I mean, who would imagine that those civilians, children in eastern Ukraine, who are being slaughtered on and on and on and again, 
would be free again. No, Putin would just regroup. Uh, the heavy losses he has also with his own military, he would have uh, as a chance uh, to reorganize uh, there, and then we would see his um, aggression uh, later on. So therefore, what we have to do now is to continue what we have started, also as European. To enhance the European pillar within NATO, we know that we have to take a bigger responsibility as uh, Europeans within NATO. This is why we are all increasing our uh, military spendings uh, over 2%. But above that, we need more military production within Europe. We are having to build a common European and defense uh, union in Europe and then integrate it uh, in NATO as we have done already so. Because uh, we can only uh, win For this fight together. And on another issue, if I may, um, Israel and, and Palestine, the, the war in Gaza. What is your reaction to Prime Minister Netanyahu's paper, suggestion, blueprint, whatever they want to call it, for the day after, that envisions uh, big security barriers, in their words, inside Gaza, cutting off or closing Rafah and Gaza to Egypt, and essentially having permanent or foreseeable security presence and control of, from the river to the sea, in other words, from the West Bank, obviously, all the way through Israel, through to Gaza. The U.S. Has, has said, you know, settlements are against international law. They have criticized that. And what is your position on this day after paper? Well, the last uh, four months have shown clearly Israelis, future generations in Israel, can only live in peace and security if Palestinians are living in peace and security. And the same goes to the other side. Palestinians can only live in peace and security if Israelis live forever in peace and security. And this is why we need this path to a two-state solution. We need the security that the 7th of October will never happen again. We need this security from the Arab world. And on the other hand, we need the security that also Palestinians can live in dignity and peace as we are all living. And for that, it needs a humanitarian pause now. Now is the moment where we need a humanitarian pause to free all the hostages from Hamas and to bring in the humanitarian aid, which is so heavily needed by thousands of Palestinians. I mean, 17,000 children without fathers and mothers. This cannot go on like that. And on that pathway coming then from a humanitarian pause after the hostages have been released, after humanitarian aid is in, to a sustainable ceasefire, and then really not ending this war, but ending the conflict for future generations. This is a pathway we want to go with many partners like the Americans, the Brits. We are working with Arab partners uh, on this uh, pathway all together because only a two-state solution brings uh, peace for everybody in the region. On the settlers in the West Bank you were mentioning, I was also very clear when I was uh, in uh, Israel in the region the last five times since the 7th of October. International law is clear that the settlements uh, are illegal and this is why that extremist settlers pushing out uh, Palestinians from their own homes. I've uh, visited some of these farmers and there was a drone over my own head because uh, we crossed uh, a line which uh, radical uh, settlers have set but which is totally illegal. Um, that this is being sanctioned so this is very important because we are standing all together for international law. It is very hard. I mean we are working on that day by day but we cannot give up. We
we have to bring peace to the Middle East. How much effort is needed for that, we have to uh, contribute, all of us. And one last question again about Ukraine. You talked about the EU and how it would join. But you know the uh, EU president has, has pushed any accession talks for several months. Um, why? Putting it on the back burner. Sorry, can you repeat it? Which president? You, you said about EU accession? The EU. EU, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's pushed it back on the back burner for a few months. No, uh, I mean, we made crystal clear in December as a European Union uh, that Ukraine belongs to our European Union because we are a union uh, of values. We have a clear process on that. You have to fulfill all uh, chapters uh, of uh, European law with anti-corruption, with rule of law, with freedom of uh, media. And uh, Ukraine is working on that on a speed which is impressive because they are obviously in the midst of a war. So um, as they are uh, doing their reforms so quickly, I'm very, very sure that uh, the entering of Ukraine to the European Union we will see uh, sooner than later. Yeah. Annalena Baerbock, Foreign Minister of Germany, thank you so much for joining us. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, fresh off the success of pushing the foreign aid bill through the Senate, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has been in Ukraine. He says without the aid, the Ukrainians are facing losses for the first time in a long time and warns what could happen if this continues, not just to Ukraine, but also to the West. It is a warning echoed by our next guest, Penny Pritzker, the former Commerce Secretary who last year took on the role of U.S. Special Representative for Ukraine's economic recovery. And she joins Michelle Martinow to discuss what continued U.S. support means for the future of this country and how to rebuild this nation's economy in the middle of war. Thanks, Christian. Penny Prisker, thank you so much for talking with us today. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. I just wanted to start by asking, you know, you have a special relationship with Ukraine. If, do, you, do you mind sharing that? Well, thank you for asking. My great-grandfather was the immigrant in our family who came to the United States 140 years ago from just outside of Kiev. Uh, his family had a grain store there that was ransacked by the Russians, and their lives were in danger, and they were forced to leave and come to the United States. Uh, and there he was able to educate himself and to uh, build a business and grow a family. And I'm a you know descendant of his. And so Ukraine has always held a very special place in my heart and particularly seeing what the Russians are again doing to Ukraine, mm. it uh, strikes a chord with me. You have been serving as U.S. Special Representative for Ukraine's economic recovery. You began serving in September of 2023. I'm not sure that everybody knows that this position exists. So, so for, for those who are just becoming aware of this, what are your responsibilities? What have you been tasked with doing? 
So President Biden asked me to work across the U.S. government, to work with our allies, to work with the Ukrainians, to work with the private sector, to try and help them, the Ukrainians, plot a path forward for economic recovery. And there's a fundamental belief behind all this, which is that you have to pursue recovery at the same time as you're pursuing the war. Hmm. You can't let the economy just fall apart. And what's been extraordinary about the Ukrainians is their economy is alive, it's active, it's resilient. Their GDP grew 5% last year, investment grew 17%, tax revenues in January were up 25%, and inflation's down. And so it's a vibrant place. 60% of the country has not been touched by war. And so it's important to keep that functioning at the same time as the country is prosecuting a fight against Putin. So after Russia invaded Ukraine in February of 2022, as I understand it, Ukraine's GDP shrank by 29%. And But as you've just told us, in 2023, its GDP, gross domestic product, grew almost 5%. I mean, outperforming actually initial forecasts and actually some economies that are not at war. How do you, how do you explain that? Well, it's a couple of things, and some of it is very much a result of the partnership with the United States as well as with Europe. First of all, opening up the Black Sea Corridor again, really, really critical. In If you remember last fall, Russia walked away from the Black Sea Initiative, which was allowed grain to get out to the rest of the world, much needed grain uh, out to the rest of the world. We had to get that corridor. Um, we developed a new corridor. It had to be demined. It had to get up and operating again. That's a big. That's essential to tax revenue coming into uh, the Ukrainian government. The other thing is the tech sector. The tech sector has has grown over seven percent over the last eighteen months or so, and. The Ukrainian talent, and I hear it from all kinds of manufacturers and tech companies. In fact, I was with the CEO of BMW last week who was telling me the harnesses that run are essential to running a BMW car are made in Western Ukraine. He said, I cannot find that skilled labor anywhere else in the world. And so there is a talent base there and a resilience that is in the people that is really extraordinary. You see it on the battlefield and you certainly see it in, in manufacturing or in agriculture and in other parts of the economy. Would you just say a bit more about Ukraine's role in the world economy? I mean, people are used to thinking of it as sort of the breadbasket of you know that part of the world, but could you just say more about what that actually means? Sure. First of all, Ukraine, much of Ukraine's grain goes to the global south. It's important to feeding Africa and other parts in the southern hemisphere. And if you think about one of the causes of migration around the world is lack of food, there's a direct correlation between their ability to produce grain, get it out to the rest of the marketplace, and, and uh other issues that are facing the world around migration and refugees and things like that. The other thing is steel. Uh, mm. Ukraine has an enormous reservoir of 
uh, recyclable steel that can be turned into new products. And in fact, one thinks of recyclable steel in modern steelmaking as a raw material. And they have the largest inventory in the world. It's important they get their steel out to the rest of the world as well. So Ukraine, and that's and another factor is Ukraine has also integrated its energy system with Europe. So it has the capacity to contribute to European energy, which is really critical, you know, as, as Europe has weaned itself off of Russian gas. You've also said that this isn't just a war of military aggression, it's also an economic war. But why do you say that? I guess a lot of people are sort of wondering what the motivation has really been. Is it this kind of massive ego project of uh, the Russian president? It sort of, you know, kind of feeds his sort of his his kind of quest to restore the glory of the Russian empire? Or is it to sort of bring Ukraine to its knees because they have succeeded in all these ways in which, you know, in which Russia has not? I mean, I'm just it, like, what what do you think it's about? I think it's about everything you just listed. I think that this is an ego project of Putin's. I think it is about uh, recreating the Russian empire. I think this is about taunting uh, the West. Hmm. Uh, this is about... Uh, Vladimir Putin's creation of what is his place in history. Uh, and uh, it, it's it's horrific, just horrific. And, and I, I want to focus on something that I think is really important. Right now, as we speak, the situation in Ukraine is desperate. We are foot dragging on our military and economic aid. We are helping Putin right now by not arming and not supporting Ukraine. The Europeans have passed economic support, but they don't have the military equipment to send or the munitions to send to Ukraine. We do. And the fact that we're not doing it makes no sense to me. One can argue on the, on the uh, you know, this is about our own security. That makes no sense. We should be defending Ukraine because we don't want to end up with NATO in a war with Putin, which will bring, you know, Article 5 into play. But what also doesn't make sense to me is the money that is spent on military equipment being sent to Ukraine is actually being spent in the United States. We send our older versions of equipment and munitions to the Ukrainians. They upgrade them and we produce new equipment, new HIMARS, new Bradleys, new howitzers made in Minnesota, made in Alabama, made in New Jersey. Though that production gets, that inventory gets replenished and that production occurs here in the United States. So I do not understand uh, why we're dragging our feet. It makes no sense to me at all. Have you had a chance to discuss this with some of the lawmakers who are dragging their feet? One of their arguments is, is that Ukraine is not showing sufficient success on the battlefield that they feel that the investment is going to pay off. I think it's a misperception, actually, that the uh, Ukrainians have not been successful. They've taken 50 percent of their territory. They've liberated it back from the Russians. 315,000 Russians have been killed or captured uh, during this war. That is 87% of the size of the Russian pre-war army. 
Uh, Two-thirds of the Russian military equipment has been damaged or destroyed. And Ukraine, they've gone from having nine drone companies to over 200 producing drones on their own. Mm-hmm. We're also learning about what it is to prosecute a war, a drone war. That is the war of the future. So I think there, I, I think it's a mistake to think that Ukraine is failing. And it's a mistake to think that our efforts and our um, dollars and our equipment is being wasted. This week, Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba told my colleague, Christian Amanpour, that his country is expanding Ukraine's capacity to build its own weapons and to make it less dependent on outside funding. Is this something that the U.S. should be supporting? Absolutely. And in fact, that's one of the things that my uh, my effort is supporting and very active in. We're working closely with our defense uh, industry here in the United States, as well as uh, uh, the Defense Department to expedite some of that uh, production capability. It's extremely important and makes perfect sense because it's an, Ukraine used to be a defense exporter to Europe prior to the war. It will be so again as Europe will is rearming itself, but now it needs the production for its own defense. And frankly, they're defending us. They're defending Europe. So tell me what else you're working on. What are some of the other avenues that you're pursuing as part of this project as U.S. Special Representative to aid in Ukraine's recovery? What what are you spending your day on? So the sectors of the economy that we've been focused on are around agriculture, how to increase production and get uh, the product out to the world market, which needs it. Uh, it, Defense industry, which I've talked about, there's various projects that we're working on. Minerals and mining and steel, helping them get that production back up and operating tech. As I've talked about, there's enormous demand for tech uh, and the and the individuals uh, and their, that capability. Um, and then, of course, there's logistics and transportation. The other part of our work is really focused on what I call foundational issues. There are things that need to be true besides security in order for uh, recovery to occur and also to minimize the time from when there's the end of the war and the economy is hitting its uh, full velocity, if you will. And those are things like insurance. Those are things like, um, you know, the ability, what is the, what, what is the world going to do about seized Russian sovereign assets? What are we doing about reforms within country and corruption? There's an enormous effort that we have going uh, with uh, uh, throughout the State Department and um, with uh, our ambassador and post on making sure that uh, Ukraine is adopting the reforms necessary, not just to trade with the United States, but to become part of the European Union. And one of the arguments there and one of the impediments there, you know, it's been said, you know, over and over again is corruption. That is one of the reasons why the EU has not rushed to allow Ukraine to join. And the fact is that reconstruction efforts in other parts of the world have not been as successful as a lot of people would like, as certainly the citizens of these countries would have liked, because because of because of corruption. I mean, I'm thinking, obviously, I'm thinking of Afghanistan. I'm thinking about Iraq. I'm thinking about Haiti. And there's still enormous suffering in these places. What can you do 
to there's a, there's to assure to that this doesn't, does, you know what I mean, that that history doesn't repeat itself here? There's a lot to do. So, for example, on my last trip to Ukraine, I brought three American CEOs, one from an ag company, one from a f- financial services company, and one from an insurance company. And we sat with the, all the leadership of the RADA. Every single party in the RADA, which is their parliament, was represented. And we they heard from the CEOs what the cost is and what the impediments are to further investment. The RADA is very motivated. They told us they're in, they anticipate passing something like 250 different pieces of legislation this year. President Zelensky and his leadership team, Prime Minister Shmihal, they're very focused on addressing then not just having the laws, but then implementing the laws. It is a cultural change. The thing that gives me hope is, and why is, can this be different, is that when you the polling of uh, Ukrainians, which is extensive, I think it's something like 80 plus percent want to be part of Europe. They see themselves as Europeans. They see themselves as being able to participate in the kind of economic uh, growth that is possible if they're part of the EU. They understand what's at stake. The government also recognizes in Ukraine that if they don't clean up their act, there isn't going to be more funding. There isn't going to be more support from either Europe, Japan, United States, or anyone else. So everyone has woken up to the fact that this is a must-do undertaking and is really uh, putting uh, their shoulder to this. Going back to the experience that you've had as a as a member of a prior sort of democratic administration, what's what's it like now? Are people interested in what you have to say? Yes, they are. And I'll just say that vote that occurred in the Senate, 70 to 29, I think that's a reflection of uh, the kind of bipartisan support that exists in the American people that also exists in the House. And if, you know, the speaker and it can get this bill to the floor. He, he can. There is no reason. It could happen today. It could happen tomorrow. Um, you know, there's enormous progress that can be made. And when I talk to members of the House and the Senate about not only the potential in the war, but also the potential economically, they actually get quite excited because for very little dollars, we can really help jumpstart their economy and help them become more self-sufficient. And uh, it's, it's to me, uh, I have found that there is receptivity. It's not 100%. We all know that. But there is a bipartisan majority uh, sufficient to pass this legislation, and it needs to get done. And I don't understand the idea of waiting such that Ukraine is forced to withdraw from of Dika. I mean, that makes no sense. They were rationing ammunitions. Why are they doing that? They're doing that because we're not supporting them. That is terrible. Obviously, there's been a lot of focus on the military aid that that the Ukrainians desperately want and need, which the administration, the Biden administration desperately wants them to have, but which, as we've just been discussing, some members, particularly in the House, seem sort of reluctant to 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 give. What if that doesn't happen? And I, I'm focusing specifically on your role in tr- in trying to promote and assist the, the economic recovery. What if that doesn't happen? Is there a plan B? 
this has got to happen. There can't be a plan B. This there's more at stake than uh, mm -hmm. uh, just Ukraine sovereignty. What's at stake is stability in the world, and we people need to embrace that. Our con Congress, our members of our House, under they understand it. I think they're being driven by, you know, politics. And at some point you have to stand up and be counted uh, and recognize that doing the right thing is important, not just for Ukraine, not just for Europe. This is about U.S. leadership in the world. Our credibility is on the line. We have told the Ukrainians, we have told the world that we will stand with Ukraine. And now we're waffling. It's It makes no sense to me. Madam Secretary. Penny Prisco, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you very much. And you can imagine it makes no sense to people here either. As they say, and as many analysts say, Ukraine could win if it was the political, win, the political wing, the political will of its allies. Finally, life here in Ukraine has changed dramatically in the two years since Russia invaded. For many, it had moved entirely to new cities and countries, forced to leave behind a home under attack. 15-year-old Andriy Nonka fled Kharkiv with his mother in the early days, whilst his father stayed to fight. Now in Gdansk, Poland, he says it's hard to tell where home is. But he's made new friends at a boxing club and learnt more Polish. Sometimes I feel how much I want to go to Ukraine and see everyone. But here, I somehow got used to the fact that there is a war in Ukraine, but I have more opportunities for my future here. Also in Poland is 16-year-old Maharita Chiklova from Kherson. She left in April 2022 with her mother. After sleeping in a basement for weeks, her new home, she says, is on stage at a local theater club. It's a safe place, which I like, where I feel like home. Some people say that home is not a place where you live, but home is a place where you feel good. And I feel good on the stage, with people close to me. This is my home. Just two of the millions of Ukrainians who've been forced to make new dreams far away from home. That is it for now. If you ever miss our show, you can find the latest episode shortly after it airs on our podcast. And remember, you can always catch us online on our website and all over social media. Thank you for watching and goodbye from Dnipro and Ukraine. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.